Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Berenbaum. I'm so happy to be back recording since I recorded my special episode with Alan Harrison on his new book, Scene Change, which I did right before Thanksgiving. I got some great news about the podcast. It turns out 2023 was an amazing year of growth for the show. 95% of Spotify listeners found the show this year. We grew by about 50% and the show is being listened to in nine countries all over the world. I think I said this on social media somewhere, but the show and the podcast really started out as a labor of love and I was so insecure about it at first. I didn't want to be yet another millennial with the podcast and I was sort of like, who would listen to me anyway, but I'm never lying when I say that doing these interviews and then writing about them for Arts Journal are almost always the highlight of my week, so it's super gratifying to hear that a lot of people are enjoying them as well. But that just means I hope you keep it up. We have a lot of awesome guests and episodes already planned for 2024. So subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. Give us a five-star rating. Shoot me a comment to let me know what you think about any specific episode or guest. And tell all your friends. Seriously, any friends. Okay, so that's enough self-aggrandizing for one episode, I think. Especially because I have the pleasure of having my lovely guest in person today. When she and I were scheduling, I had to ask her like eight times if she was sure she hadn't yet done the pod because she is such an obvious guest to me. I can't believe I hadn't welcomed her sooner. So a little background. My guest is from L.A. and graduated with not one but two undergraduate degrees, one from Columbia in theater and drama arts and one from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in modern Jewish studies. She is a 2022 member of the Director's Lab North, a 2022 artist in residence at the Upper J Arts Center's CA plus MP residency, an alum of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation Observership Program. And her recent directing credits include the Apostle Peter and his lover John, also an apostle at Ars Nova Antfest, Notes from the Basement at the Watermill Center and at Dixon Place, and Invincible, the musical featuring the music of Pat Benatar and John Turturro's adaptation of Sabbath's theater as an associate or assistant director. In 2022, she was named one of New York Jewish Week's 36 to watch, and she's a senior writer at Unshut, an immersive episodic experience blending theater, VR, and game design. In her free time, if she has any free time, she officiates bar and bat mitzvahs and helps students with their academic and Judaic studies. There's clearly so much to say, but I can't help but also mention that this guest and I met as apprentices or what was then known as apprentices at Berkshire Theatre Group almost 10 years ago and have been besties ever since. I love her. I, again, can't believe she hasn't been on the show already. So please welcome Molly Heller. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. <laughs> Yay! And we're in person. How does it feel? It is, feels great. Is it awkward or is it better in person? I, I think it's know. better. You think? Person. Yeah, absolutely. I feel so weird just like talking about you and not looking at you in my like little <laughs> monologue first. It was pretty wonderful to watch. We were talking about before we hopped on how we haven't seen each other because of our crazy show schedules recently. So it's just, it's wonderful to be in space with you. I know, in a space. In Such a, space. a director <laughs> always. But you, Molly, 
didn't mention that when she got here and came into the living room, which I just took as an insult. She was like, wow, it looks so much more lived in. I mean, and that's, I meant it as such a, Molly, it's so dusty and it's dirty. dusty or dirty. It's beautiful. And there's more art on the walls when I, when I was here last, a picture of you and your beautiful parents. And uh, we are beautiful. So Thank you for mentioning. Thank you for mentioning. The looks of the beer mom family. I know it's not a visual medium, but if it, it's you, important for the listeners to know. They need to know. <laughs> Molly, let's get right to it. I want to start from the beginning. Some might say a very good place to start. A joke I, you listen to the pod, I make almost every time. Great joke. Can you remember a sort of light bulb or aha moment that you had in childhood, or it could be later, adolescence, when you said, theater is for me, this is what I want to do with my life? It's such a good question. And I, I knew that you were going to ask the question. I, I couldn't think of a specific moment, but I think growing up, I wasn't really a theater kid. I really got into theater in high school. So it was a little later in the game, but I was obsessed with the movie musical. Oh, and I wore out my VHSs of Greece and My Fair Lady. Like Greece. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Love Greece. Uh-huh. Hopelessly Devoted to You was probably my favorite song of five years old. Those were like the source sex. I felt so good. Wow. Uh, and then I really got into theater in high school. I went to a really wonderful high school in California. Shout out to Chadway, where the arts were really taken care of. And I was able to do jump into acting and directing and writing and figuring out how to be an artist from a young age. And I had to choose between photography and doing theater and I chose theater and I think it's it was a good it was a good call I can't imagine making my life as a photographer in this world wait was that a choice that everyone had to make or were you choosing can you imagine (laughs) the two tracks for artists no I was really I didn't know you were into that I was really into photography I was fully immersed in like the what's called not the dark room but the The dark room is that what it's called I think maybe we'll have to take that out. <laughs> and clearly you were real new to it. So they selected a couple people each year to take photos for the yearbook. We're really good photography. Yeah. And so I was on that track to do that. At the same time, I thought I really like theater and I want to give that a try in a real way. And then I was immediately cast as lead role in Lost in Yonkers as the grandma. Hell yeah. And that was from the never history. Yeah. It's interesting, though. I always assume people that are from L.A. You said movie musicals, but I assume people from L.A., everyone is somehow involved in Hollywood. So I as a New Yorker, I think it's kind of unique and odd when an L.A. person becomes obsessed with theater because I feel like they would become obsessed with Hollywood. And you obviously ultimately went to New York for college. Was that part of the equation for you? I think, yes. It's hard to remember when I was applying to colleges, it was really everybody and everywhere was interesting to me for Mm. different reasons. But I knew I wanted to study theater and I knew I wanted to study Jewish studies. Mm -hmm. And I was so lucky to find this program at Columbia that allows you to do both things extremely in depth and have mm-hmm. two degrees, two core curriculums and uh, a wildly uh, packed schedule of six to eight classes a semester. Wow. Um, and the nerd in me was so excited about the opportunity to do those things at such high levels. But I love movies. I love TV. I've always loved those things. And I'm a big 
consumer of both of those industries. And I love the feeling of theater and being in those spaces. And I think that's ultimately like what you have access to. I was always making little movies with my friends, but it also seemed like in plays with my friends. Yeah. Yeah. I too was making little movies. (laughs) I think that everyone of a certain age slash personality was. Yes. And I'm so glad that YouTube wasn't around. Oh my God. My friends and I were just talking and TikTok. And TikTok. Absolutely. Because we would have there's no way we wouldn't have tried to put that stuff out there. Yeah, to the there's world. no way. And <laughs> thank God it's lost a time. <laughs> it's lost a time. I think my friend Jillian still has some of our videos mm-hmm. on her like like an old flash drive. But yeah. I used to take a little video camera around with my friends on trips that we would go on mm-hmm. and make documentaries That's cute. that cataloged our time together. And recently we found some of them when we're going back through. Mm-hmm. And it's just really sweet to have those time capsules. But I'm really glad the narrative portions of my documentary career have completely yeah. been wiped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that if TikTok had been around, <laughs> I can't even imagine. No. I think we were all really into SNL at the time. So one of the iconic ones we made was like a spoof of like 17 magazine like Mm. flirting tips. Oh, wow. And that's definitely the kind of thing that people would put on TikTok. Absolutely. I always played the guy. I don't know (laughs) what that says about me and friendships. (laughs) Um, You mentioned this dual degree that you did at Columbia. I know a lot about you, obviously, from being friends, Mm -hmm. but had to do i'm a professional i had to do a little bit of research (laughs) yeah sure and i was struck it seems like and you you even just said you knew from the time you were applying to college that you wanted these two experiences and you continue to prepare students for their bar and bat mitzvahs and you just did this production of sabbath cedar which is obviously like jewish adjacent i would say and so i'm curious both as a podcast host and as your friend and as someone who works in theater and is also Jewish, has it always been important to you to have those sort of two strands of your identity working side by side? And do you think they inform each other or no? I think they absolutely inform each other. I think it's only recently that I've been able to see more of a crossover between them. But even when I was in school, I took a lot of classes that were about Yiddish theater and the history of Yiddish theater and that that entire era. But I think they absolutely inform each other. I think that the way that Jews approach the world is very integral to the way that artists approach the world and asking questions and being okay with living in the present Mm. and the nature of performance and ritual and the sacred and profane. And Mm. um, there's so much crossover. Yeah. But I... Other than Fiddler on the Roof, which for many of us were was yeah. the core X, I don't think that I saw modernity yeah. on stage in many ways until very recently or like modern versions of Judaism and questions of mm-hmm. assimilation or even if that question it applies anymore. I know mm-hmm. that we both read that. I was going to say the Jesse Green piece. Yeah. So I think it acts absolutely informs one another. And I think that if you were to distill me down as a person, it's like, you know that I'm an artist and you know that I'm a Jew and you probably know that I'm gay. And those are probably some of the most important things about me. That was going to be my next question because it's very interesting on your website. The first sentence of your description of yourself is, I think it's like Molly Rose Heller, 
is a lesbian artist living in New York. So I was going to ask too this third pillar of your identity. I know people like get uncomfortable talking about identity too much. So feel free to stop me if you want. But I'm curious how that third pillar informs your art making too. Totally. There's so much about when I was growing up in the area that I grew up in. I grew up in a not very Jewish part of Los Angeles, like not real Los Angeles. I'm from the suburbs of Los Angeles. And we spent a lot of time at Hebrew school growing up. And I made some of my closest connections in childhood with my Jewish friends because we were at temple together for hours and hours on end every week. It seemed like hours and hours. Absolutely. And that aspect of my identity became very important with the way I showed up in the world Mm -hmm. and my set of values, the, the people I surround myself with, and just the pillars of how I hope to exist. And I frequently felt in a place where I was the Jewish representative before I was the representative of the Jewish people for XYZ topics. Yeah. And felt great pride to be able to be in that place and then coming to New York and be like, wow, I am amongst Jews in art and in culture. And that's so different from that experience. And Throughout all that time growing up as a closeted kid and not fully engaging with that part of myself until much later in life, I came out in my 20s. And I think that part of being proud of these parts of myself in the world feels really important as an artist and in showing other kids what you can do and how to be proud and show up for yourself and show up for others. And it feels important to be able to walk into any room and say, I'm a gay Jew. And that really informs who I am in the world. Yeah, this interestingly leads to my next question, perhaps more so than acting, which we, we can have an argument about the extent to which acting should be a chameleon based thing because I think a lot more people are thinking of acting these days in terms of identity but putting that aside Mm -hmm. acting is so much more about can you inhabit this other character but when you're directing or writing or generally theater making it seems to me that a lot more of it is about bringing yourself to the work and your specific interpretation and so therefore it seems like questions of identity and how you see the world and how the world sees you are going to be so much more important to the process. Which brings me to my next question, which is when we met, we were doing an acting apprenticeship Mm -hmm. and you were such are one of the most talented actors. So kind. Certainly there. So kind. And I knew that you also directed and also did, did all these other things. But I think the interesting thing about that program and that time in both of our lives was that everyone was sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to do yet in the business. I know I want to be in the business, but I don't really know like where I fit yet. Do you feel like you've had a moment of transition where you were like, I'm a director now, or I do these other things rather than act, or are you still working that out? It's a great question. It's a good question for me too. I really saw myself as an actor Mm -hmm. for so long Mm -hmm. and 
not to say that I didn't see myself with those other things, mm-hmm. but I thought that was going to be the way that I made art for the majority of my life mm-hmm. through an acting lens. And it wasn't until being in the world and working on art and being trying to be a working actor mm-hmm. that I felt drawn to these other sides of my artistic life that I hadn't touched fully mm-hmm. and decided to get back into them. So I think it was more of a an exploration yeah. that led me there than a, a, a definitive I'm doing switch. this other thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm curious because I think we are similar in that we wear many hats in the theater and I try to bring in a lot of guests who wear a lot of hats because it's very interesting to me. Have you ever felt pressure either from the industry or from yourself or from specific people to decide what you are? Like, yes, you are. I'm a director and that's it. Or And, and how do you deal with that? That's I don't know how I deal with it. Yeah, but neither do I. I'm basically <laughs> asking for advice. I think I have learned how to think of myself as an artist as opposed to in any specific discipline Mm. and that whatever project I'm working on I'm going to be able to fit into whatever makes sense most for that project and in projecting myself in the world I don't think that I'm pushing myself as an actor right now in the ways that I did when I was in my early 20s and right out of school and yeah actually going with you to EPAs. you know epas and yeah. those calls very early in the morning wow, and yeah living an audition lifestyle and i know for myself that i don't think that lifestyle fits me mm-hmm. and there came a certain point when i was transitioning into directing and starting to ask around to the people that i had worked with and mm-hmm. professors from college and all that and saying does anybody need an assistant i just want to be in the room in looking at things from a directing standpoint that there there was a shift in my thinking about how I could survive in the industry and make it a career as opposed to something that I was just doing. And immediately when I started directing, there's so much about momentum in this industry regardless, but I think in directing especially, and I felt so much ease of momentum in that switch, in that it was, you would be on a project and someone would say your name and you'd get into another room and then it would be lined up and you would have a place to go. And something about that clarity was really important to me in being able to be in rooms and make work that I wasn't experiencing as an actor and also being able to create my own work in a way that I wasn't able to do as an actor and to ask those questions that I want to be asking. And there was a certain point where, you know, the only things I was going into as an actor were broad comedies and those are great and Mm -hmm. you can do them for a while or at least I could do them for a while and then at a certain point I felt like my brain wasn't being used in ways that I thought that it might be nice to use it yeah and so that transition was really helpful in in pulling those muscles back and firing those neurons up again in order to think about art from a different lens it's so funny you said that thing about momentum. I remember so clearly, and this reminds me I need to have her on the podcast, but my friend Megan Sakura, do you know her? She's a dancer, Broadway dancer, mm-hmm. actor. Um, I met her through my agents. And we were having lunch 
probably two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And I was talking to her about this very topic in my own life. And she's, she's like a Reiki healer. She's very calm and wise and also has the edge of like more experience and more time lived. And she said to me, and I'll never forget it. She was like, sometimes the things that come naturally should tell you something. And it was just like such an interesting way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you should always do everything that is easy. I know that I, like, when I was in school, my parents would get mad at me because I never wanted to do math because it was hard. (laughs) And everything else felt easy and math was hard. But separately, like, when I was auditioning, everything was such a push. Sisyphus pushing, (laughs) is that the right person? Pushing (laughs) that boulder up a mountain. And then directing is obviously really hard too. It's, it's hard, but it's hard in a different way. Yeah. It's, as you said, it's, oh, if you do a good job on this project, you'll probably get referred for this other project and word of mouth happens. And it, for, for me, as you say, it's just been like something that has felt natural mm-hmm. as opposed to a damn struggle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I do still struggle. And I'm, it sounds like you do too with like the labels of it all. The labels are hard. And I think. I think that's something that I think about myself as an artist, like going back to the queer question Mm -hmm. a little bit, like it is a queer medium for me. Queer in the sense of there's the boundaries are more flexible Mm. than we want them to be. Yeah. And I think that when you're a young artist, believing that's possible is really difficult. And I find it's easier as you get older to be able to shift into those different categories and to not have to be so rigid in how you define yourself and to redefine yourself. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, the joy of aging in this, it feels very scary to do in many ways, but I also think it opens up so many opportunities for us. I agree. Another question of identity, we're obviously both women and there are a lot more women actors than there are women directors. And Sometimes I think leading the room, being like the big cheese can feel a little different when you're a woman, especially when you're like conscious of being perceived as like a young woman. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not looking forward per se to getting older, but a little part of me is for that like extra gravitas. I don't know if you ever think about that. Absolutely. I had, I don't know if Benjamin Velez Mm was a great composer. He's a fellow Columbia varsity show alum and he once told me when i was younger and looking for advice about how he's kept it up and been able to make a career and he's really about to become one of the luminaries of broadway composers and he said when i turned 30 people started to take me seriously and i thought that can't possibly be true how is that true though when you turn 30 people start taking it seriously and then the moment i turned 30 a bunch of things happened and really yeah I'm just looking forward to turning 30 exactly things just fell into my lap in ways that I thought okay there's something about right or wrong Mm. about being not a young woman at the helm of these rooms that is really helpful I've only seen the positive benefits so far of getting older in this industry. But I'm sure there are negatives and I'm sure there are negatives and I'm sure we'll experience that too but I also was feeling as an actor I was never going to be like the young ingenue. Like that's not my type anyway. So I've been told forever that 
aging in this industry would be better for me. And yes. I didn't think it would happen on the directing side too, but I think that's also of just the nature of it. Also, I actually do think you become a better director with more life experience Absolutely. and knowing more about other stuff. So Absolutely. it's helpful to, in that way to be older. It's really helpful. And it's also, you know, I think my acting has made me a better director. I don't think I would be the director I am without having the experience that I had as an actor Definitely. and learning what that's like and really going through that in a visceral way. Yes. Yeah. And I feel that I am a good actor and I think I'm a much better director. And I think that's something that I feel in the ease of doing it. Mm -hmm. And just knowing the mark that I can make on certain things. Like I see actors do things every day that I think I could never do that. Sure. They're, they're so singular in what they're doing. And that's not to knock myself, but just to say that I'm so much more inspired by that as a director than I am as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting truly getting to know yourself yes. and where you fit in the world. Would you say you have a style as an artist, but also specifically as a director? Yeah, I think I do. I think <clears throat> my background is a little bit experimental and avant-garde. And because of that, things are usually a little bit turned. Things can be a little kooky in my world. And there's always a bit of humor. There's always a bit of play. And style is such an interesting way to talk about what we do. Yeah, because you know I mean? some people I'm sure would say, no, I don't have a style. I whatever I do serves the. <laughs> yeah, but it's undoubtedly true. You yeah. see a show by a specific director who's done many shows and are like, that's that director's show. Absolutely. Or that's that playwright's work or whatever. Yes. But I definitely agree with you on the subject of style. I remember seeing your thesis at Columbia with my spouse <laughs> with my mom. And we were both like whoa <laughs> totally i consider myself like somewhat smart and i was like what very dumb um, yeah but that being said something i really admire about you and your career is that you're not only doing that no. like your career is so varied in this past year you did romeo and juliet adaptation set to the music of pat benatar and then you did this very loyal roth adaptation and your own projects do you enjoy that variety i love it and then love i love the variety yeah i think that to be so lucky to do so many different things and i know that you and i are both lovers of musical theater and i am always on my high horse about making musical theater cool again and i also love straight plays and i yeah. also love the classics yeah. and to be so lucky to work in so many different areas and put my spin on it feels like an absolute dream. Do you approach them it. differently? No. Yeah. Everything's the same. They require different considerations, yeah. I would say, and different pre-production and research. But it's all the same storytelling at the heart of it. Yeah. You're someone like me who has done as much as an associate or assistant as you have as on your own. And something else unique about directing as opposed to acting um, is that it is much more of a like old school, like apprentice style field in that you're supposed to assist an associate 
a certain amount of time and then mm-hmm. someone waves a magic wand and they're like, you're a director now. <laughs> Go forth. And I think this might have to do with our like age yes. conversation, but it's something I've been thinking about lately. First of all, whether you, I think I know the answer to this, but whether you value your time as an assistant associate, because some people from the get are like, I'm not doing that. And then secondly, if you feel like, is there a time at which you're going to be like, no more? That's, I w- w- would love to have that time come, but <laughs> I, 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 get that paycheck. <laughs> I get that paycheck. It's really valuable to see how yeah. other people run the rooms. So from acting, we had more experiences with a, a wider variety of directors than most people have had in the director chair, which I think mm-hmm. is only useful information. And Having access to rooms that you might not be able to at our age or our stage of career have access to in the director's seat mm-hmm. is always valuable. Yeah. And it's sometimes validating and knowing we're ready to do it when the time That's comes. That's true. And also learning some of the things that you wouldn't know unless you're in those rooms. I think so much, there's a lot of gatekeeping in this industry, unfortunately, a lot of it, um, which God willing, we're able to dismantle more and more. But for now, that is one of the ways that young directors can have a front row. And there there are more and more organizations that are working to put more people and more kinds of people in those positions, luckily. But it's the industry is still a little bit failed. And because of that, I think it's really important for us to get that firsthand knowledge. I think it's great for making connections with people. I'm a little bit shy when I make people. And Are you? I am. Really? Yes, very much. Maybe I've just known you so long. You've known me for a yeah. long time. Yeah. So for me, that really getting to meet people and have those relationships that you can only have behind the tech table is really valuable because I'm not one of those directors who's really leaning on the networking side of things. It's something that I really struggle with from doing the business side of the job. And I'm trying to get better. I don't know what that means. It's something that I think about and I think, oh gosh, I see so many people who do it so well. And I wish that I, I knew how to do that more naturally. So for me, meeting people one-on-one and being able to work with them and make those connections feels much more authentic to who I am as Mm. an artist too. I really have been lucky to assist and do associate work for directors whose work I really admire yeah, and whose brains I really admire. And from every one of them, you pick up something that you say, I'm going to use that. That's that's going in my toolkit. So I only have good things to say about the experiences. And hopefully one day I'll be able to do that for other people. And not only have those as the biggest things on my resume. I definitely think it's true you pick something up everywhere. I think it's such, and also neither of us went to grad school for our, or undergrad for directing. And a lot of directors do. So many people ask me, do you think you're going to go get an MFA in directing? And what I always say, I don't know if you feel differently, is I basically have an MFA in directing. I've been doing it for the seven years since I've been out of college. And assisting for a director like Joe Bonnie or John Rando or Jen Thompson, to me, is the education. Absolutely. And to get to have mentors like that mm-hmm. in the business. Because if, if you get along with, if you get along with your boss, and like you said, you've been behind the tech table and work 8 till 2 a.m. with those people, they're going to be in your corner for life. Yeah. 
And you steal stuff. Absolutely. My friend was a swing in New York, New York. Mm -hmm. Heard of it. And I've obviously obsessed with Stroh, have been my whole life. And she told me something I'm definitely going to steal from Stroh. Which is? Which is that Stroh, every project she does, she calls every single actor like the weekend before rehearsals start just to be like, Hey, how's it going? I'm so excited to be working with you. That's exciting. Don't you think that's awesome? I love that. Joe, who I just assisted or associate directed for, has lunch with everybody. Wow. And I think that said it was a, it was a small you cast. Can't do that on 25 Can't do that. But yeah. still, I, it's such a nice way to get to know people outside. And we're talking a lot about how the British audition process, which I didn't know much about. Is she British? No, she's Australian. Oh. But... We were talking about how they do it. I don't know why, but it came up in conversation. Sure. And there's tea and you sit. Are you serious? And you have a conversation and sometimes you get to the material and sometimes you don't. And I think that if I could run every audition like that, my work would be so much better. (laughs) I agree. Really getting to know the human being. And that's so much more important a lot of the time than and sometimes just you get good some, like crazies yeah <laughs> you don't know because you've only seen them work on the material and as well as i do that some people are great auditioners and then might not be able to provide as such through the arc of a full play and vice versa some people are not great auditioners so yeah depending on a piece it can always shift and change so the idea of having conversation with somebody as a way to get to know them as an artist and who they are and what they could bring to the character and what they're thinking about, that's so much more important to me as a director. I wish we did that. It's interesting what you say about networking, gatekeeping, and what we were talking about, about our directing careers feeling more natural. And sometimes I have insecurity about, is that because a directing career is much more dependent on like, People just liking you as a person and like emailing people and like going out to lunch with people and stuff as opposed to like your raw talent shining through at an open call. And I still don't know where I guess I'm, I've made peace with it. And I'm, that's part of the job. Like yeah. people have to like you. For better or for worse. I think a lot about the networking side of things. But all, it's and also in terms of fairness and yes. diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. I have a lot of, like I said, guilt or thoughts about oh what does it say that I know how to behave in certain rooms I know how to talk to certain people and that has certainly given me a leg up in my directing career absolutely it's an imperfect system and there's no one way to do it and I've seen many people who have been great assistants and associates and have gotten their career doing that but might not be the greatest director in the world just based on their artistry alone. Sure. And a lot of the systems for getting people into those positions are either through somebody who can set you up on a lunch date or a coffee date or you send an email or through these programs where a lot of the time you're you're writing about your art as opposed to anybody seeing the art that you totally. make. And I don't know that I have a great fix for all of that, but it's something that as we get further in our careers, I think should be conscious about in terms of how we're also bringing other people into our rooms and what the access to that can be and should be. And thank God for places like SDCF and 
these organizations that are working so hard to connect young people and more diverse young people with the career of directing and lift some of those barriers to entry in many ways. Um, but yeah, it's something I think about it a lot. It's a lot of funding is needed in order to put on your own work. And for directors who have ideas about what they want to do, which hopefully they all do, yeah, it's how do you get that start without assisting people? And it, with, what, you, you don't, don't have access to yeah. producers or funders and that seems impossible. So for some people, I think the MFA track, especially those free programs, for sure. are a way to do that. Yeah. So there's no one way to do it. No, there isn't. But it's I think it's good to be thinking about, as you say, especially as we get more entrenched and older in our own careers about about maybe how we would change mm -hmm. some things or how we would run a room. Yeah. I think about running a room a lot. Me too. Have you had an assistant? Only? Yeah, I have. And how was that for you? I, in having assistance, I, I would like to be better in having assistance. Same. I've only had it one time. Yeah. Too. The, the most successful version of this, I think, was when I had a friend of a friend who was assisting me. And she's an artist. Her name is Taylor Steele. Brilliant artist in many different mediums. Writer, poet, a lot of different areas. And I was familiar with her work and I trusted her creative eye. And I don't know that you always have the ability to do that with assistance. But that's that question of networking Correct. again, right? Because if you're taking a chance on some random yes. person that you don't know, you're not going to trust their creative eye in the same way that like if your friend Jerry Zachs is like, oh, Katie assisted me on this, she'll be great. Correct. I also learned a lot from watching how yeah. other directors yeah. use me in rooms or yeah. not. Um, <laughs> or not. At rarely the not, luckily. I've assisted very kind people. Very generous, I should say. And probably one of the, the first big things that I worked on with somebody who I hadn't worked with before was Eric Tucker, Tucker of Bedlam. Yeah. Um, and the way that Eric wanted to hear from everybody in the room, not just the assistants, not just the actors, not just stage managers. If anybody was in the room, he wanted to make sure that if they saw something, they were free to say something. And that's always something that I've really taken in my work. Everyone's eyes are valid. They're all seeing the same thing. Everyone's coming in with different experiences. And because of that, I think that just knowing what people are seeing in the work is useful. It, you might not use all of it, but it's useful information. And they might be closer to the audience experience yes. because sometimes it's hard to remember, like we're so in it yes. and we're so like, we're like, oh, I got that reference to Arthur Miller and scene three. Sure. And the audience, average audience member no is like, what? <laughs> like, I just want to see see the show. Yes. On the subject of Bedlam, you, I, another interesting thing about your career is that you've worked with a lot of like immersive theater and different styles of theater, gaming. And I was thinking about it when I was researching you and this episode. Last week, I interviewed Alan Harrison on his book, Scene Change. And a lot of that dealt with what do we do about the dire financial straits that nonprofit theaters are in right now? And he had a lot of answers, but I was thinking about you and I was curious whether you think like that is going to be a fruitful direction for theater to be working in experiences that intersect more with like nightlife or tech or all these other things i don't know is that something that you've thought about yeah i 
feel really interested in the questions of how the American theater survives. I think that there are a lot of populations of people who are just not invited into theater spaces and that some of those areas have natural populations that could be interested in theater if something related to them. And I think a lot about the barrier to entry. I think a lot about the programming issue of late of programming shows with more diverse stories, but not actually doing anything for bringing those communities into the theater and engaging them. And then being like, why didn't they come? Correct. And then saying that is the reason why they shouldn't right. continue to do these things. It it just feels like we're at a reckoning point where Theater, like I said, musical theater can be cool. Theater can be cool. We can be reaching more mainstream populations. Not to say that theater needs to be commercial in order to survive. And I don't think that it does. I love the downtown theater that built me and built many of us. And those weird things, when I look at the music world and I think about the amount of engagement with that in Mm. terms of low ticket prices for smaller things that exist and thinking about just the variety of people who are willing to show up for someone's concert who they might not have heard of before, but Mm -hmm. a friend brings them. Like those are things that exist in the theater in the same way. And if we're not trying to find new ways to engage those populations and do more community building, especially in New York, where it feels like there are natural spaces that can be attached to more flexible theater opportunities, whatever that might be, if that's like opening spaces up as more community spaces and opening up to wider than just theater performances. So all that's to say that I have no idea how to fix anything, but I think that we can be more creative in how we reach different populations and what we think of as the barriers to entry for getting into a theater seat. Yeah, the music comparison is interesting because I remember like my first year of grad school was fall 2021. And so we were still very much recovering from the pandemic as a country and a world. And we would talk about it a lot in class because the attendance numbers in theater were like not at all back to pre-pandemic levels, but live music. Yes. And concerts were back. And that's still true. Correct. And it's interesting because I know my friends who work in music and are like on the indie music scene have a lot of complaints about how music has been democratized, Mm -hmm. how they get five cents for any song. But the flip side of that is that people do discover random people Mm -hmm. on SoundCloud and then become like super passionate about them. Yeah in a way that doesn't happen in the theater. So it's, uh, again, I don't know how to solve it either, Mm -hmm. but I think there's something that has to be done in terms of democratization that hasn't happened. I think all of the hand-wringing in theater about streaming is pointless. We want people in Ohio to be watching TikToks of six. That is in all of our interests. Correct. And we're bootleg kids. Like we grew up watching bootlegs of, for sorry to the bootleg people, but we, I mean, we, that's how we learned what these incredible shows were like before we were able to see them ourselves. I think it's only showing more 
to the world is in all of our interests. During the pandemic, I was able to watch those Eva Van Hova's ensemble yeah. in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. I believe Amsterdam. And I watched a lot of the national yeah, theater. Exactly. And what in what world could we do that else? So why wouldn't we embrace that in our work? I always think about the music comparison too, in that the theater seems to be, especially musical theater and especially commercial musical theater seems to be bringing in more and more pop and mm-hmm. contemporary artists yeah, in contemporary names, but fitting them within a very narrow box. And that actually might not be the most interesting way to use those artists and to break the mold and do something new. We're trying to do the same thing over and over again in many different ways from all of the the IP perspective. Yeah. But that also seems like something that could bring more people in. I don't understand why we're not trying to engage with those artists in more inventive modes. Interesting ways. Yeah. This is slightly off topic, but relates. Do you have any professional goals for yourself that you feel wanting to share for the next three years? Not three years, few years. Three years? Three years is specific. (laughs) I meant few years. The next few years, I... Goals are so... They're tough, right? Huh. Especially in our industry, it's hard to be like, I'm going to manifest. I want to be someone who manifests, but Mm -hmm. it's such a scary industry that you feel naming it is yeah so scary i just I, in the most general of terms i would love to keep working yeah. i think that's really important to me is to like yeah. to keep making art yeah. and to keep working on stories that i care about that feels really interesting career-wise it's so hard to say because you never know what's going to happen but i would love to get some more of my passion projects up in front of wider just bigger audiences and mm-hmm. So we'll see. I guess it's... It's exciting. Yeah, it's, it feels like an exciting moment. It is an exciting moment in your career. The listeners heard your bio. It's incredible. Before we do my little ending segment, I want to ask a question that I ask almost all my guests, which is, do you have any advice for aspiring, I would say just artists, but maybe specifically directors who are listening? And also we talked about issues of identity. So if you want, you could address specifically female directors or specifically gay directors or even Jewish, whatever identity slant you want to take or nothing. I would say my advice would be, I think that a lot of your guests say to say yes to things. Uh-huh. And I think that's really important. But I think you're going to say no. I <laughs> That's something that I've learned the hard way is learning how to say no to things yeah is have been really important especially coming back from the pandemic mm-hmm. when you can have the scarcity mentality about jobs mm-hmm. and about working in this industry entirely so learning mm-hmm. what projects are going to actually help you and I, that can mean many different things it could be i really care about the story so i really want to do this it could be i really want to work with this person so I really want to do this. Mm-hmm. It could be, I really need this paycheck. So I really want to do this. But there are certain opportunities that come that you that are not for you to take. And you might not need to take everything that falls into your lap as much as myself, a person who is a glutton for opportunity and experience wants to take everything. I've had to learn to say no to things. And that's been very difficult for me to do. It's Continues really to be very difficult for me to do. 
So I would say that's a really important skill to um, nurture. And I would also say life experience and getting out in the world and trying to find opportunities that will fuel your soul as opposed to just it all relates to your artistry, but we can get very insular in this world. And it feels very important to get outside of the theater world sometimes and be able to engage with the entire depth of experience that is out there and not just be so concerned with all of the business of things, which we can get really bogged down by. I think that's really good advice. Both. I definitely could use the saying no advice. And I think it relates. I guess what I would say to young listeners, as I haven't yet turned 30, but I will next year. Mm -hmm. I do think it's different at different phases of your career. I do think when you're 22 and you just graduated from college, the vibe is say yes to anything, kind of so that you can get that life experience and professional experience. But I was talking about this with my parents the other day. We're not like babies anymore. And we actually have like real professional experience and professional credits at this point. So it shouldn't be a matter of, oh my God, I'm so lucky. Like, let me, <laughs> yes, whatever you say. And I just, it sounds like you definitely had to learn that. And life experience, I think, is so important for any artist. Yeah. And job. I would also say find a way to support yourself. Sure. If you want to be an artist, mm-hmm. you have to find out how to be an artist between jobs. And that totally. is really difficult emotionally and also in terms of stability. So, if you can find a way to support yourself in those times, that is making sure that you'll be able to show up for yourself as an artist. 100%. I want to end with my thank you five segment. You're familiar. You're a listener. Five minutes to places. I hope you're going to like these. You don't have to answer this question. I was curious. Do you have any upcoming projects about which you're excited? You Uh mentioned wanting to get passion projects produced. Yeah. You could talk about that too. Pitch all my projects. Yeah. To the listeners. Yeah. To the producers. Who knows? Maybe Jordan Roth is listening. There we go. I am. Yes. I will. Sabbath Theater is running at the new Yes. Until December 17th. Catch it while it's still up. Um, I am working on a one woman show with Kate Eberstadt, who is a. She did the notes from the bass. Correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. And part concert part stage essay start part dj set wow i love Um, the part dj set set part (laughs) stage essay absolutely (laughs) and it is a deep dive into the grieving process and how in the theories of quantum physics and how music might be a way to um, connect with those that we've loved and lost it's a piece that's very near and dear to my heart and hopefully we'll find a home sometime soon. Invite us to a theater or a living room near you. And I will be going upstate next week to work on a new show by Sam Balzac. Oh. Which is wonderful who you've met. Yes. Friend of the pod, I'm sure. I don't know if I've had him on, but you should. I should. Yeah. So yeah, there there are a number of projects out there that are in various stages of development. So hopefully some of them will hit sometime soon. We're excited. And go see Sabbath Sabbath's theater if you're listening. Do you have a favorite piece of Jewish theater? And that could mean anything. Yes. 
Uh, I love Fiddler, so it, it, I would be remiss to not mention Fiddler again for <laughs> a second time on the pod. Yeah. But I have been working on an adaptation, a queer adaptation of the Dibba, oh, which yes. is the most famous Yiddish play. And I love that text so Do much. Do you speak Yiddish? I took a semester of Yiddish. Sure. So I know versus this is a hand versus this is a finger. I'm showing my hand and my finger in this yeah. moment. Uh, no, I don't speak Yiddish. That's awesome. I'm excited about that. Who are you working on that with? I'm working on that with my friend, Fernanda Douglas. Um, I think I met her. Yeah. Cool. Similar question. You might have the same answer. Do you have a favorite piece of queer theater? Or even it could even be like queer coded theater. I think most theater is queer coded though. Yeah. That's a great question. I will say that <clears throat> Fun Home was one of the first pieces that I saw in college and then after college, right around the time when I was coming out. And it was something that <laughs> in the process I saw maybe five or six times and fell in love with. It came to me in a very momentous time in my queer journey. So I would say Fun Home, That's which great. is not what I was expecting to say, but is. That's beautiful. I've written about this on Arts Journal, but even as a not queer woman, specifically Cindy Lucas's Ring of Keys performance at the, I think it's the 2015 Tony Awards. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, I think yes. it's one of the best examples of good acting. Absolutely. Ever. Agreed. Shout out, Cindy Lucas. Shout out. Um, come on the pod. Come on the pod. I would kill <laughs> to have her on the pod. I have to ask this because of our history, which we mentioned. I can't believe I didn't have more questions about our time in the Berkshires, but yeah. do you have a favorite memory from our summer in the Berkshires? <laughs> I remember I can't cheer on the pod. Um, <laughs> um That... It was such a special summer. It was so that we special. Had. I feel like we really fell in love as friends we in did. that time. And a lot <laughs> happened. I was thinking the other day, I don't know if I have a specific memory. I was thinking the other day about how seriously we took our Suzuki training when we were there. Oh my God, yeah. And how important that felt to me to be really good at at, at stomping <laughs> my feet every morning in a circle. And that just, it seems so pure and wholesome looking back on it. Do you have a favorite memory? I was randomly thinking when I was writing this, I was thinking about Donut Day. <laughs> I forgot about Donut Day. Which, for those who don't know, I should have Alana on the pod, but oh, we had this amazing choreographer and director who was our dance teacher for mm -hmm. the summer named Alana Ransom Toplitz. And she was definitely in her 20s. Yes, I think so. But I think at the time we were all, we were like scared of her and had her up she on a so pedestal, cool. pedestal and she was so cool. And we had dance right after lunch and someone had heard that it was donut day. And so if you went to any donut shop in the world, you would get free donuts. And of course, we were all poor college students. So we were like, we have to go get donuts on donut day. But it's the Berkshire, so you have to drive everywhere and you never know what the traffic's going to be like. And we were all late, like every single person in our apprentice class were late to our, our dance class. And I just remember Alana was so mad and she was like, why are all of you late? Why are all of you late? And there was this like long pause and I forget who it was, but someone was like, it was donut day. And Alana was like, donut day. 
you are late to class because of Donut Day. Do you remember who said that it was Donut Day? I don't. I feel like it was either Allie or Amanda. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We had some good personalities. Yes. There's so many. We got called out for Donut Day. We got majorly (laughs) called out for Donut Day. And there are a lot of memories I can't say on the Yeah. I'm trying to think. One of the strongest, we had an overnight strike together or maybe just a regular strike together once. And it was in the peak of our competing about whether Varsity Show or Triangle was better. And Which is just, it's shocking that we didn't go into it. You mentioned Varsity Show, <laughs> but I've yet to mention Triangle on this specific contest. And we were just talking about it nonstop. And I think the tech people around us were like... Very annoyed. Uh, yeah, as we were handing seed clamps unceremoniously. And just bossing yes. anything. But the Suzuki is a good memory. Yeah. I, I will never... forget that time of being so wide-eyed in that environment and being so grateful to be in such a beautiful setting for that summer and meeting such wonderful people and working with incredible artists. Yeah. I do remember at, we had a cabaret and you had saying, We'd sung together Mama Bormi or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, the last song, the whole thing had gone really well. And I was singing Being Alive as the final song of the cabaret. (laughs) And I forgot the lyrics. And I just put my hands in my face and I said, Being Alive. (laughs) I do remember that. Then we got back on track, but that will stick out to me for for Wow, yeah. A lot of great memories from that amazing summer. And I get why people don't do apprenticeships or internships like really in that way anymore. But I we did a lot of parking cars. We did a lot of parking cars. And when I say parking cars, we didn't physically park the car, directing cars to be parked. But very few people who are younger than us will ever have an experience like that. Yeah. And I mean, it was unique. So stock, true stock. True stock. Lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. My last thank you five. You're a friend of the pod. You've heard this. What to you would you say is an artist or a director's essential? I think collaborators who you think are smarter than you are. Ooh, that's a really good one. Yeah, I think it's essential to have people whose opinions you respect. Yes. Potentially more than your own at times. Totally. And the ability to just be like, you'll take care of this, right? You'll make this look beautiful is unmatched. Molly, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me on. I truly, I I feel so grateful to have you in my life. Same here. I'm so impressed with everything that you do. You made this podcast. You truly built this. And it's so remarkable and so absurdly fit for what you're good at and talking to people and connecting with them and getting them to open up. And I just, I feel always lucky to be your friend, but... Okay. It's so good to grow, be able to grow up together in this industry. It's really seriously. Somebody's answer, I can't remember who, someone a bit older than us, their answer to the essential, mm-hmm. I think it was a playwright, was like a group of artists yeah. that you trust to come up with. Yes. Like I think mentors are so important. I wouldn't trade in my mentors for anything, but this sort of like class yeah. of people that we have come up with and worked with. Obviously, there are many people in the industry I dislike, but I'm about to name them all. But it just feels so, like you said, lucky to root for their successes and 
help them when there's a sense of failure and collectively lift each other up. Yes. And also feel confident in the future. To feel that in 20 years, I think we'll both still be doing this. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it really is. And I think there's so much toxicity and jealousy that can feed into yeah. this career and to be able to have people that you trust and you root for and you know are good people yeah. that are doing this. It just feels so, I, I couldn't be more grateful. I feel the same way about you. But I also think a lot of that has to do with aging again. Yeah. I do remember there used to be someone that I was like always jealous of their career. And some of that has to do with my own exploration of what my career looks like and how it's yeah. tailored to me and yours is tailored to you. But I remember there was just a day where I just stopped being jealous of them. And it felt amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's growing up. It's growing up. And confidence, I think. Yeah. And knowing that somebody's success does not mean your failure. I think that's really hard to internalize when you're younger. And I'm a big proponent of like always going to my friend's shows Same. and like people who I really respect going to see their stuff and making sure to like make that a priority Definitely. in my life. And I think that going back to that scarcity mentality thing that is really present when you're younger and as you get older, the success of people that are in your circle is only successful for you. Totally. And it's, we're all trying to make art together. Like it should only be a positive thing where we were able to root for one another. And also, what is the phrase? Like rising tides rise mm -hmm. together or yeah. something like that. I want to work with people I like. Always. That gets back to our conversation about gatekeeping and networking mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But most directors I'm sure that you've worked with work with the same designers Correct. every time. Correct. And at first, when I first started in the industry, I was like, that's so weird. And now I'm like, that's the most natural thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And I just worked on Annie and all of us associates were really close. And the associate lighting designer, when we went out to dinner one night and he was like, Cheers to the next generation. I really want to get to know you guys so that you can hire me for your next yeah. thing. And it's funny, obviously, but it's also really nice and yeah. sweet. Molly, just such a joy. Like I said at the beginning, I just couldn't believe that I hadn't found you on the pod before because I don't know if listeners can tell, but I feel like conversation between us is just so natural and I so respect your brain. I respect your brain. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about things. I send my most controversial opinions to you, I feel, or things that I want to talk about. And I feel the yeah, same way. It's great. It's, it's great. great. You need to have safe spaces like that. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything you feel like we missed or should have discussed or that you want to plug? We plugged Abbott's Theater. I feel, you feel good. good. I feel that I should plug for your listeners. There should be a Katie is interviewed. Uh, oh, I don't know who I would trust to interview. I know. Me. you got to find the maybe right. Maybe it's you. I, I don't know. know. <laughs> you just said you were shy earlier, so maybe not. <laughs> That's really nice. I've done like a solo show about a specific thing. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe I would like to be interviewed. I've been on one mm -hmm. podcast as a guest. It was fun. Crossover. Oh my God, a crossover ad. That's such a good idea. Yeah, I don't have a podcast, but if I did, I'd, I'd make that happen. Yeah, wow. Okay, stuff to think about. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Molly. It really was a pleasure. Thank you, listeners. Like I said before, so grateful to all of you sticking with me and for the growth uh, this past year. We have, 
I believe, one more amazing guest for the year 2023. I can't believe it's coming to a close, but 2024 is already shaping up to be an awesome year for call time. Um, You're going to want to stay tuned. So please do that.